Lord, we pause and we remember the sacrifice that you made and we thank you. We thank you for the cross where you freely shed your blood for us, where you gave your body, your very life to redeem us, to redeem us from the penalty of sin. Lord, we cannot thank you enough for the cross. Our only response can be to worship you, to proclaim that you are our Lord and our Savior. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. In your name I pray, amen. Good evening. Uh, If you are a guest with us tonight, uh, Rick didn't mention this. One, we're excited that you're here. Uh, Tonight is a different style of service. It's a little bit more acoustic, stripped back, um, not as produced as what you will experience on a Sunday morning. Um, But we're excited nonetheless that you're here. And so if you are a guest with us tonight, there are connect cards that look like this that are at the tithes and offerings boxes at the back of our church. Before you leave tonight, if you would grab one of those and just let us know that you are here, man, we would love to follow up with you and just say thanks for coming. Um, And uh, we are, we're, we're glad that you're here. Tonight is Good Friday. I'm gonna begin by speaking out of Romans chapter six, verse 23. It's a monumental verse in the life of Christian's life. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, you probably didn't see that on the screen because as tonight is a little bit more stripped back, one of the things that I would like you to do is get out your Bible, if you have one, if you brought it with you. If you don't, you can get your phone out and open your uh, Uversion app or ESV app or whatever you, that you use. Um, we will be in Matthew chapter 26 tonight for the majority of what we're going to be talking about. This verse, though, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. This verse is what this service, what this moment in history is all about. Service called Good Friday. And Romans chapter six, verse 23, embodies what it means for Good Friday to be good. But Good Friday didn't fully spring into action on Friday. It actually started a couple of days before that. And that's where we pick it up in Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse one, I'm gonna be reading out of the NLT. It says, When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said this to his disciples. As you know, the Passover begins in two days and the Son of Man, he was speaking of himself, will be handed over to be crucified. From this moment, when Jesus had finished saying all of these things, he was was teaching, he was doing some stuff. From this moment on, it begins a series of events or what I'm gonna call snapshots that are really, really important to the story, but for tonight and the purpose of tonight, we are just gonna look at them picture by picture and not fully break them down. And so tonight, look at this like a movie that you would that jumps from scene to scene to scene and just gives a brief clip or image. First snapshot is Jesus is anointed by Mary Magdalene. It's an incredible moment. She's, she's weeping and she, she breaks this jar and she has this incredible moment. And while that happened, in the moment where she's doing this sacrificial, one of the most sacrificial things that, that you see of anybody that's not Christ in scripture in the New Testament do, the disciples in that moment become jealous. Saying, could, could, could we have not done more with what she gave? Could we have not done more? Which is our response, right? We, we do this in church all the time. Could, we, we, could not we have done something else to do more? Could we not have done something else, right? 
From this moment, we jump to the next snapshot, which is when Judas Iscariot embodies that same jealousy portrayed by the disciples in that moment with Mary, when he becomes fully jealous and he agrees to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. The camera then shifts again to the Last Supper, which is where we're gonna pick it up tonight in verse 26. And it begins by saying, as they were eating. As they were eating. We all understand that, right? We're, if you're at this church, you know that we're a Baptist church. We're all about eating. We, we enjoy that part of things. And so it says, as they were eating. This is a really important phrase in the life of this passage because it means that as they sat down to this Passover meal, something that as a Jewish person they had done every single year of their entire life, And as they sat down to this meal, as they looked at the elements laying before them, these symbols of the coming Messiah laid out throughout the Old Testament that they were celebrating from this moment of Exodus when they painted the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of their houses so that the death angel would pass over them. That celebratory moment that they were having, everything that they ever needed actually in symbolic form was laying in front of them pointing them to the man that was sitting at the same meal that they were sitting at. And so as they were eating is really, really important for us to understand because as they were eating, something they had done every year, they still didn't understand. They still didn't see. Now what is this Passover meal all about? The Bible actually acknowledges the the fact that the Lord's Supper, which is something that you all got the elements of tonight. Hopefully you got one of these. If you didn't, they're, they're right outside. You can go ahead and go get them right now, like run to go get them because we're going to celebrate that here in a second. But throughout the Bible, the, the Bible acknowledges that the Lord's Supper will raise questions. In and of itself, it is a mysterious thing. The Passover meal, when it was first instituted, for instance, Moses, back in Exodus chapter 12, Moses says this. He says, and when your children say to you, when, when they begin to ask questions of you, What do you mean by this sacrifice? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. God knew that the Passover, that that moment would need explaining. He knew we would wonder why. Why the Passover? Why celebrate that moment? Why take these elements? Jesus, in this moment, as they were eating, begins to answer that what and why. The what is that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance. Now, the word ordinance should be really commonplace for all of us, right? We live in a day and age where that word is, is, is used far often in the, with mask ordinances uh, all over the place. But an ordinance, if you just break that down, it's an authoritative order, right? That's what an ordinance is, that Christ created this this authoritative order. The Lord's Supper is an authoritative order that Christ created in the church that those who believe and profess Jesus as Lord that we participate in, both inwardly and outwardly. Inwardly, we remember the death of Christ. As we take these elements, it's what makes this moment so significant. When we drink this cup, when we eat the little piece of bread, we are remembering the death that Christ paid for us inwardly. As well as outwardly, we are agreeing amongst brothers and sisters in Christ that this, this is the body that he died for. That as we gather together, this body of believers, that that's what he died for. 
So that's the what. The why is really similar. That the Lord's Supper is like baptism. It's actually viewed in the same light as baptism. That it is an outward symbol of an inward change. That when we take of these elements, we are agreeing that we have that inward change already a part of our hearts. That the Holy Spirit is living and dwelling within us. That the righteousness of Christ that we see on the cross, that he has imputed that righteousness upon us. He's placed that on us like clothes, like skin. And so as you inwardly declare that Christ is Lord and you believe that his death paid for your sins, that he rose to defeat death entirely, you are also in that same moment outwardly declaring your agreement with other believers that Christ's crucifixion was enough, that our debt was paid, that his death was the atonement of sin, his resurrection, which is what we'll talk about all day Sunday, right? That's what Easter is coming. That's why it's so important that the resurrection is the demonstration of, of the truth of Jesus' claims about himself, as well as the demonstration that the atonement made on the cross was accepted by the Father for us. It's what Romans 6.23 is all about, right? It's one thing to, to, to die and be buried. It was a whole other thing to be raised again. And that's what Jesus is confirming on the cross. That's what he confirms in the Lord's Supper. And so as we take this Lord's Supper tonight, let us think about the what, what it is. Let's, let us not just take it as another element, but, but really reflect on what this, this moment is and the why, because this isn't just a Jesus Lunchable, right? This isn't just a little snack. If it was, it's not that good. The juice doesn't taste that good and the cracker's pretty dry. But it is important as baptism in the life of a believer. And so as we take this tonight, as we begin walking through this passage and we take these elements, what I will ask is that if you're not a believer, if you haven't placed your faith and trust in Jesus, my ask is that you simply would not participate. That may sound weird, but it is for the life of a believer. It is something that, just like baptism, if you're not a saved person, I don't want you getting baptized. (laughs) It's the same thing applies to this. And so as we take this, If you're not a believer in this room, maybe you should sit and ask, what is stopping me from believing? What is keeping me from belief? It says that Jesus took the bread and he blessed it. So as we take the bread, you can go ahead and peel that first layer back. I know it's kind of tricky if you you got, you know, you ain't got no fingernails like me. Sometimes it's, it's just tough to get up underneath that. It says that he broke it into pieces, much like what you have tonight. And he gave it to the disciples and he said, take this and eat it, for it is my body. If you will go ahead and take your little wrapper and peel that second layer back. It says he took a cup of wine. In our case, it's juice. And he gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and he said, each of you drink from it for this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. He goes on to say, he says, mark my words, I will not drink again until the day I drink it with new with you in my father's kingdom. It says, then they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives, which I love that part that, that in this moment, there, there's all these different things going on. They're fellowshipping, they're feasting, they're having this intimate moment with Christ. And then it says they sang together. 
which is what we, do, we, we, we just did and we're going to do at the end of the service, whatever they sang together. The scene, the scene then shifts from this, this monumental moment, the, the, the symbol of what Christ was about to do. He was, he was proclaiming what he was about to do in this moment. But it shifts to the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where Peter pledges his allegiance to Christ. He says, I'll do anything for you. And Jesus confirms his denial. He says, Peter, before the sun rises, before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me three times, right? Jesus then, once again, he is confronted with a very human temptation. He's in the garden, he's praying, and he's, he's confronted with this human temptation to save his own life instead of sacrificing his life for others. It's similar to the temptation that Jesus experiences in the wilderness to exalt himself, to place himself above others, his own kingdom above others, his own needs, his own desires above others, especially his father. Jesus denies this temptation. He ultimately submits to his father's will and he immediately is followed in that submission by his betrayal from one of his best friends. Judas. He's arrested. And at the time when he was arrested, Jerusalem was operating underneath the rule of the Roman Empire. And so when Jesus is arrested, he's arrested by the Jewish leaders. He's taken before them in, in their council known as the Sanhedrin, and they charge him. They accuse him of blasphemy and charge him with a crime. But the outcome of which they wanted, which is to execute him, they did not have the power to do. The Romans alone held that power, and so they knew, hey, we got to go manipulate the government to do what, I, what we want them to do. we got to go before the government. we got to go before the people above us and manipulate them to make them do what we want them to do. And so they take him to a man, a ruler named Pontius Pilate, and they make this claim about Jesus, that Jesus is this rebel king stirring up rebellion amongst the Jewish people. They say, hey, if you don't stop him, if we don't put him to death... He's going to do some really bad stuff to the Romans. And so Pilate straight up asks him, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus goes, hey, he says, he says, those are your words, not mine. You said it. Pontius, in this moment, actually sees Jesus as an innocent man. It even says that he knew the re religious leaders arrested Jesus out of envy. In Matthew, it gives us that, that little piece of information that, that, they, that he knew that Jesus was innocent. But in this moment, as he sits at the seat of judgment, he makes a decision that he's either going to release Jesus, whom he knows is innocent, whom his wife knows is innocent, or he presents a man named Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a criminal. He was. He was a... He was a, a, a a criminal. He was a re rebellious criminal. And Pilate marches Barabbas out and stands him next to Jesus and asks the crowd, who do you want? And they answer with Barabbas. They free him. And as Pilate is sitting in this place of judgment, he decides to make this deal with these people at this time to release this notorious prisoner, this criminal rebel Barabbas. And in that moment, the innocent man of Christ took the place of the guilty one, Barabbas. This moment 
is hugely important to us. As we talk about the reason that Good Friday is good, it's because this scene is us. This is us. It's every single one of us that we are marched out in front of a righteous and perfect God. He says, who do you want? The innocent man Jesus who never sinned, who lived a perfect sinless life, or us, whom our best efforts, as, as the Bible says, our best that we offer God is like dirty rags. We are guilty of breaking God's law. We are the rebel towards God's ways. We are selfish, and without Christ, we are waiting to suffer God's wrath. Often in church, we, we don't talk about hell and the weightiness of hell. But the reality is, is that all of us, without Christ, we're already on our way there. And so we have to see how terrible we are before we can understand how great Christ is. There's a book that I, I've been reading uh, for a seminary class that I'm, I'm, I'm taking right now. It's called Generation IQ. It actually, it's not a super spiritual book. It's more of a leadership book. But in this book, he begins to talk about, the author begins to talk about why or how unfulfilled desires in our lives tend to run our life. And he has this incredible quote and what I believe lays out the reason that we need Christ and why the good news is so good and why we need it, why it's so important to us. And this is what it says. It says, Jesus came to show us that we can trust God to take care of making things work out right. So we don't have to. The good news is that God will look us in the eye and push through our self-deception by telling us this. And this, what he's about to quote, what I'm about to quote him saying, this is something that every single one of us need to hear and we have to understand deeply. He says, no, you are not okay. What you're obsessed with isn't worth loving. You are messed up. And that's why you spend so much energy manipulating and maneuvering and worrying. You can't make your life work and will never be able to be good on your own, even according to your own low standards. He's, he's, he's talking like he is crying. He says, I can't let you into heaven because even your highest standards are too low. Heaven is perfect, and you will ruin it. I know you struggle to understand this because you, are on, you only love people who are nice, but I love you even though you are often a self-centered jerk. Actually, I've loved you since before I made the world. I knew then that you would mess up your life. Nonetheless, I love you so much that I made you anyway. Knowing the price I would have to pay to cleanse you from your sins and begin the process of transforming you into someone who enjoys doing what is good, a person who will love the way that I run heaven. He goes on to say, our God is stunning. We need to see the God that Jesus saw. We need to see the, the God that Jesus served. We need to see the God that Jesus was. When we begin to see God as that perfect judge, and Christ as that perfect atonement, that is when the gospel becomes sufficient. When we see ourselves the way God sees us. It's what I talked about a couple weeks ago when I talked about confession. Like when we confess our sin before God, we are just agreeing with God about that sin. So back to the story. Jesus is arrested. He's accused. He's sent to be killed by the means of crucifixion. Now what you have to understand is that the Romans were incredibly good at the evil art of executing somebody. They didn't just know how to kill people. They knew how to keep someone alive long enough that death was the, most, the thing that they most desired. 
where, they, where the, the person was left begging for death. And they would hang that desire right in front of that person like a carrot in front of a donkey. Where they could, they could, they were so close they could smell it. They could almost taste it. And they would prolong life just a little bit more. A little bit more pain. A little bit more uh, suffering. That's what the cross was all about. It was beyond any earthly pain that we can understand. The process that Jesus experienced was meant to prolong life just enough where he was left ready for death. What the Romans didn't understand is that he was ready for death long before he ever got on that cross. He understood what his life was about. He understood his purpose. He understood where he was going, what he was doing, who he was. But in this moment, in Matthew chapter 26, 27. That's where he's at. It says, along the way they came across a man named Simon who was from Cyrene and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross and they went out to a place called Golgotha. It says the soldiers gave Jesus wine mixed with bitter gall but when he had tasted it, he refused to drink it. And after, after that, they had nailed him to the cross. The soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice and then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head announcing the charge against him. It read this, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two criminals were crucified with him. One on his right and one on his left. So Jesus is taken. He's nailed to this cross. He's placed next to two other real criminals who had committed real crimes, who were deserving the death that he, as an innocent person, was experiencing himself. And even in this moment, he begins to be mocked. You say you're the king. Why don't you get down off that cross? Oh, oh, you're the son of God, but you can't even say, you saved other people, but you can't save yourself. But Jesus loved his enemies to the very end. In his worst moment, in the darkest moment of his life, of his earthly human life, he shared love. He offered hope. He turns to one of the criminals dying right next to him. and he's, He gives him hope. In Luke, he's quoted praying for the men that are actually executing, the men who drove the nails through his hands, the men who hung him on, the, on that cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And at that time, the sky darkened as an innocent man died the death of a criminal. Each gospel records Jesus kind of handling this moment, saying a couple of different things as, as different authors, as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all, all highlight a couple of different things in this moment, and, and they spotlight different things. But in John, it says this. It says, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. And so a jar of sour wine was sitting there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch and held it to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. This phrase, it is finished. It's maybe one of the most significant phrases in all of scripture. Because of what was finished in that moment. Jesus wasn't referring to his earthly life. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That wage was due. There was payment that needed to be made. 
That, that, that wage of death needed to be made. And it was. It was paid for by Christ on the cross. In that moment, the darkest moment in human history, Christ became sin. Often we don't understand this. We, we, we think that he just took the sin. That's not what he did. He became it. He became sin in that moment so that we didn't have to pay the, that debt. He who knew no sin became sin for us. This is the power of the cross. It's what allows us to stand before God sinless to those who confess and believe in Christ. Romans 10 says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He goes on to say, for it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. So Christ dies at earthly death. When he says it is finished, he had power over his own earthly life. You know why? Because he, was, he had power over earthly life to begin with. He's the one who spoke life into being in Genesis chapter 1. And he had power over life in this moment. And that's where we're left. The Savior of the world, perfect, sinless, spotless, murdered by those claiming to love God, but who secretly were envious of him. We are left where the Pharisees were, standing, looking at Christ, looking at this moment with the question sitting before us, will we accept this gift? Will we repent of our sin, confess Christ as Lord, and believe in our heart that through Christ we are made right with God? We all have that choice, that, that free gift is being offered to us. It is our job to recognize our sin, repent, and believe. Or will we stand just as Jesus' accusers stood, watching the greatest gift of human history pass before our eyes?